Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Ghibli Attack, the podcast that talks yet again about the films of the world's greatest animation studio, Studio Ghibli. I'm Michael Lieber. And I'm Steph Watts, and we've seen a lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I'm the Heron. So join us on our second quest into the glorious world of the boy and the Heron. Jake, Steph, welcome back. Um... Again, to talk about The Boy and the Heron. So soon, we left some business unfinished in our standard format episode on the film because we said we wanted to go deeper. We didn't want to go too deep on that first chat. Maybe people were on their first view. And this is where we can talk about things at length, having seen it a couple of times, right? Yeah, I'm very, very excited. I mean, there's so much to this film. Michael, you and I have been kind of pootling away on our keyboards trying to kind of understand this absolute monster of a film um and it's nice to actually just chat it through because god there is there is so much to get into about it yeah i suppose first of all a bit of housekeeping so we're recording this in the middle of december following the opening weekend of the film in the states so of course we used to when we did the old episodes of the context sections we would talk about release and box office and all that stuff this has been a historic release not only is it Hayao Miyazaki's first film in 10 years to hit cinemas it made a whopping 12.8 million dollars on its opening weekend rocketed into the top spots number one at the US box office in its opening weekend with you know a bunch of firsts I think related to that the first original anime production to be number one for example and it's well on its way to becoming the highest grossing Ghibli film at the US box office. It is now currently the highest grossing Hayao Miyazaki film, but there is one film that <laughs> still has that crown. I know, Jake, you like to trot this out at yeah, <laughs> time well, again. We're going to have to edit our live show because we always had great fun revealing that Arietti, to this day, as we would say, remains the highest grossing Ghibli film at the US box office. But give it a week, maybe two, especially over Christmas break. The Boy and the Heron is certainly going to be taking over humble Arietti. So Arietti, 19.2 million. Boy and the Heron currently on 12.8 million and counting. So yeah, give it a week or two. It's been amazing. I mean, fair play to G-Kids, the distributor in the States, who've really played a blinder with this. They've um, 
in terms of the coverage, in terms of getting the hype built to the highest level. Um, and yeah, what a result for them. And it just means we have more takes out there to digest. <laughs> but I've been trying to avoid as much of that as possible because I wanted to get this podcast out and say as much as we can about what we think about this film before delving too deep. Should we delve in? Where should we start? <laughs> um, well, I think we, we mentioned it on the last episode about the actual book, How Do You Live? And how much we thought that this was going to be an adaptation of that. So we should maybe push that aside because this is the spoiler episode. So at this point, presumably, if you're listening to this, you have seen the film. And if you have by chance read that book, you know that this isn't really an adaptation of that. And you're at this point, we can really delve into this basically entirely original story that it actually is. Yeah, absolutely. And but I suppose let's start at the very top. The very first thing you know about this film, if you're going into the cinema and you're buying your ticket, is the title, right? <laughs> the Boy and the Heron. Is that a good title for this film? Well, <laughs> it's funny you mention it. Because I had a great laugh this week when I was doing some uh, picture research on the Studio Ghibli website with my Google Translate switched on. And you roll through all of the titles of the films, which have obviously very different translations and very different translations depending on what software you're using. And um, the translation that came up for this film was... How do you guys live? Yes. <laughs> Which I guess is it's it is a little bit more literal. How do you like do, that. fellow kids? How do you live? <laughs> and it just it it just made me think of like Jerry Seinfeld trotting out on the stage. <laughs> Maybe he's got an inflatable heron under his arm and he's asking people, So uh how how do you guys live? <laughs> I don't, we, we can come back to a Jerry Seinfeld way of looking at this film with the what is the deal with as being, <laughs> being the, uh, the repeated phrase throughout this episode, maybe. But The Boy and the Heron, I know when that title was announced, people thought they're dumbing it down for an international audience. How do you live? Miyazaki himself or Suzuya Suzuki said that they wanted to have a title that really arrested the viewer and ta challenged them with a question. And we said how that did reflect... Um, Miyazaki's tendency to ask questions in his films whether they were in the taglines or the themes or leaving it up to the viewers to say so now over to you what do you think and the boy in the heron is that a little bit more generic maybe what do we think I enjoy the French version of this which is le garçon et le heron <laughs> I think it's got a nice ring to it um, but yeah I don't know it doesn't really doesn't really bother me that much like i feel like they announced it as the boy and the heron they released a picture it was a boy and a heron <laughs> so it cut you kind of knew what you were getting um i don't think it's any more or less cryptic than how do you live um just because just because you know there's a boy and a heron in it doesn't necessarily mean that you know what is going to happen when you go and see it unless you've read the whole wikipedia by now but yeah i think it's helpful for the box office as well mm -hmm. like I think the boy and the heron is more likely to capture confused parents, grandparents over a weekend looking for something that they can occupy some children with compared to something called How Do You Live? Um, 
I don't think there are much. I don't think there are many pre-teens looking for films that have that title. Titles with question marks. Mm. How many blockbuster films are there with question marks at the end? It could have been up there. I mean, maybe that's a library cafe episode for us on the Patreon, is ranking the great films that end with question marks. And there's one that doesn't. <laughs> Who Framed Roger Rabbit doesn't have a question mark at the end, which means that probably Doctor Who is the answer to that question. Doctor Who Framed Roger Rabbit. But um, I think The Boy and the Heron is a good title because it does fit in well with a strain that runs throughout Jaime Miyazaki's films and Ghibli at large of just this classic children's storytelling and fable. Mm. Folk, folk tales where it would be you know the the heron and the crane or hedgehog in the fog films that have been in, you know very much inspired Miyazaki over the years mm. can have those very straightforward titles I do wonder whether it shifts the focus the key relationship being the boy and the heron is that really the key relationship of the film we talked about in the previous episode about how more than many Miyazaki films, it seems to change every 20 minutes what it's about, the direction it's going. Even though it does have a stronger through line, I think, than others. This is one where um, you can feel the fact that he's making it up as he goes along, perhaps. And The Boy and the Heron, I love that poster as well. Particularly the difference between the UK quad-wide style poster and then the one-sheet vertical poster where the boy and the heron's faces are getting progressively closer together and it just looks like the you're willing them to kiss <laughs> in this fanfic romance version of it. In, in a way, considering the success in the Western world for this one, or what we've seen in America at least, it feels like a reversal with the approach with Spirited Away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where Spirited Away was the kind of poetic, more lyrical version of that title. And it was the Japanese title that was more direct, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, or similarly, there's Ponyo on the Cliff by the Sea, which is, is what it is in Japanese, which is thrust with the most descriptive title you can have. And they wind it all the way back to just Ponyo. But anyway, Boy in the Heron, I suppose the title is, doesn't necessarily give anything away any more or less than How Do You Live does. How are we going to d- tackle this question about what it's all about? What are our theories? Let's... um. <laughs> Let's work through it, I think. So I've got the the kind of plot, the extended plot synopsis here. And so we can work through that, see what comes to mind. We've never done anything like this on the podcast before. We've always been a bit more elusive about those plot elements. But I think this is an opportunity for us to dive deep. Um, I mean, the Wikipedia synopsis, this was put up within hours of the film coming out. So it's, <laughs> it's had time to rest here and be disputed. Um But the year is 1943, and during the Pacific War, uh, Mahito Maki's mother, Hisako, is killed in a hospital fire in Tokyo. This is the opening of the film. And amazingly, already for me, you're seeing something new. And this was a total surprise, and we mentioned this before. The animation style during this sequence of Mahito rushing through the streets of Tokyo, and you've got that kind of warped burning celluloid effect like it's totally gripping from the start and it takes me back to the earthquake at the start of the wind rises and the fire bombing at the start of grave of the fireflies like this is i mean for those grandparents and parents that are taking their kids to the sweet animated the boy in the heron film at the weekend this is quite an intense start to proceedings 
Yeah, I think we said like on the on the the non-spoilery episode that we're already seeing something so new, but seeing the influence um influence he's he's taking from other films, from Takahata's films, like into this one. Um so we're definitely getting like a lot of it's it's like a it's a team effort, it's a collaboration rather than like Miyazaki's film alone. I think there's probably something that we'll come to as we kind of go through the plot, but I think once you have watched it and go back and think about it, like it's there from the beginning almost because you're seeing like so many other hands on this piece of work. Yeah. I mean, just this morning at this record, I was watching or rewatching Never Ending Man, the documentary that was made post the making of Wind Rises and during the making of Borrow the Caterpillar, just on the cusp of beginning production on this. And even though Miyazaki in that documentary, he doesn't have a fantastic experience with working with CGI and working with a CGI artist. There's something in it where you can see him perhaps opening up to the idea of more collaboration and different styles and different voices coming in. And even though, obviously, we've seen incredible ideas float around the creative vision of Miyazaki's films, this feels like the most stylistic difference we've seen in a long time yeah and um you look you it's been mentioned in a few interviews already how miyazaki wouldn't be touching up and correcting the animation or the 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 key art of certain animators and shinya here the guy guided the opening sequence i think was just left completely to his own devices in that so there are some anime nerds already bristling when there are reviews out there saying Miyazaki himself trying new things by doing this. And as we've just said, he's trying new things by allowing people to do this. And maybe that's just because of how old he was. And Suzuki has talked in interviews about how Miyazaki was just left to do the storyboards, to do the story, and was not necessarily um, there as a consistent presence on the actual animation side. So that, therefore, he had properly deputized other young comparatively younger animators there um the timeline is really fascinating because this might help as we go through the the art book i know um we've talked before about how he likes to make his storyboards in chunks and how that therefore is a cart before the horse method of making films and that can sometimes explain how the ending doesn't necessarily match up to the intentions of the beginning. This might help us go through. He created the storyboards over a series of two years, from September 2016 to October 2018. He did this one in five chunks, A, B, C, D, and E. So pretty much this whole sequence that we're talking about and all the way up to um, Mojito being evacuated is section A. And the team would be working on that while he's still for two years figuring out the rest of the film. And there's some, there's so much to come out about those in, original intentions, about what he was inspired by, what he, story he was even really telling. And um, I think we're still going to discover so much because there are elements that are no, you know, briefly noted or mentioned in the art book, in the storyboard book, that um, aren't really there in the um in the finished work the thing that i think about when doing all of the background reading is um from that opening sequence is something he wrote in um an essay about rereading how do you live 
about how it was more the landscape of Tokyo and uh, going back to a landscape he remembers from being very little, a blighted landscape, a la uh, cities on fire. And that is completely in this opening sequence. It's nothing to do with how do you live, the book, but it's clearly something that was inspired in his imagination by reading that book, a sense of a, a city that was a city or a landscape of a country that was lost after the war because mm. the book was written in 1937. Something about Miyazaki, and this is something we'll come back to as we go through this film, is where is Miyazaki in all this? And I think already there's this feeling that because they've put out this statement that it's semi-autobiographical, that he is Mojito. And of course, metaphorically, allegorically, he is Mojito in many ways. He's not literally so because he was born in the 40s. He was born as the war started in terms of the Japanese side of it and wasn't 10 or 11, however old Mihito was at this stage of the war. And it's only very early toddler childhood age memories that he has of those final days of the war. So he's not telling an autobiographical story in that sense. He was evacuated, but he would only have been four or five at that point. He's actually probably the age of the baby we have at the end of the film rather than the age of the, the protagonist. But he is also working through a lot of stuff here, too. Um, also, something people are talking about, and it's a common theme in Miyazaki films about dead or ailing mothers. His mum lived until the 1980s. She was very, very ill when he was a kid. For like, She was in, in and out of hospital for the best part of a decade when he was a kid. But she actually lived to quite a ripe old age. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, think, I think thinking of that autobiographical sense of it, I know that in my experience talking to people that were very young during the war or were kind of born just at the end of it or just at once it was over, there is a kind of long tail to those events, like whether that is in the rebuilding of society or rations or just the kind of the wartime living very much extended past the end of the war. And so I can see how even if he was only very, very young and not necessarily has the memory of Mojito might have, how you just inherit those memories. And they he might feel like he has those memories, even though he never lived them. Because I know that I've certainly had that in life. And there'll be certain stuff that feels so vivid because of experiencing conversations or experiencing aspects of it from that time. Oh God. Yeah, of of all the kind of wartime recreations that have been within these films, this is probably the most harrowing. Mm -hmm. And I know that like there is kind of the the emotion of something like Grave of the Fireflies drawn out over those ninety minutes is so intense. But in the moment, this is to me one of the scariest things that he's put to film. It's that intense, and I think it is through that warping of the imagery. But let's let's get beyond that. Let's get outside. Let's get beyond the first let's get... four minutes or <laughs> yeah. whatever it is. <laughs> let's get out the flames. Um, so Mojito moves out to the country with his dad. His dad uh, works naturally as part of the war effort, building aeroplanes. What else, of course? <laughs> but then remarries his wife slash Mojito's mother's sister, Natsuko. What do we make of this? Going out to the country, marrying the sister, all of that business. 
Like, are we condoning or condemning it? No, what? no, 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 no. <laughs> like all of this sequence. So, okay. kind of we're going. Well, this up. is like is my the... favorite part of the film. I think, okay. like this whole. I think we said, uh, like in the last episode, this first kind of forty minutes where you're getting this like move from city to countryside, and he's settling into this kind of. I mean, it's it's familiar to the rest of the film because it's the real world, but it's such an unfamiliar world to Mahito because it's you know, this big countryside house that's got lots of different elements to it. He's got this new mother that has the same face as his actual mother because it's her sister. Um, There's a lot of kind of, I guess, like setting up of the kind of uncanny quality of the second half of the film, but it's done in the kind of real world historical drama part. Um, And I think like the tone is handled so well in that sense. Um, And of course the old ladies. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I love. I've said I love. <laughs> yeah, this 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 part is is fabulous, and I suppose, as I said, Miyazaki himself was evacuated. Possibly the most single most clearly autobiographical part is the dad. Um, he says that he designed his dad to look like his own dad, and of course, his dad also had that um, had worked for a company that made planes. So all of that is very close to his memories and his experiences. Um, but already at this point, while we're seeing things different from what we've seen in the past, we are getting notes and um, traces of maybe what we would associate with Ghibli films and Miyazaki films. There are so many of these films that are about characters being taken out of their home comfort zone and going to the countryside from Totoro to when Marnie was there. Totoro, again, is is a film about kids exploring a house, a huge house in the country they've never seen before, and the forests around it, and that's what this section is hitting on almost immediately. But of course it's dialing into great, a great tradition of storytelling of the um, the evacuation narrative, which is a, a big trend in British writing, at least, after the war, which is a, you know, reading up on it, because I, I, I lived near Brighton where many of the evacuation trains went from, the idea that they had to mobilise and move away so many of um, Britain's urban child population to keep them safe during the Blitz is something very... The scale of that project is is staggering, and Miyazaki's definitely inspired by that as well, and the sorts of stories that came out of it, like Narnia. Definitely, that's that's all over this sequence too. I think something that that came to mind in this was something that we talked about with... um... Emily St. James when she was on the podcast and that was about the kind of dualities that we see in the films and that she linked over to David Lynch's work and this this mother figure which I think in the first time that I watched the film just felt like more of an absence and I hadn't kind of imagined the more kind of surreal uncanny side of it but that imagining the sister of your mum marrying your dad and everyone keeps telling you how much she looks like her it's a really brilliant setup in the first few minutes for how alien that space must feel because it's not your home but it's kind of presented as this kind of beautiful country manner but you feel lost there all you want to do is stay in bed and you want to you've escaped the war but you've ended up in a place that's equally horrible for you because at all times you're essentially haunted by a figure that looks exactly the same as the person mm. that's been killed by the war. Yeah, it's it's vertigo, but for kids, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
it's I, I saw a Japanese critic saying they were they were trying to dig up um, actual statistics for how many there's actually a word for it the the, the marrying the the wife of or brother of you know because it actually happened in the second first second world war when there is so much mourning and trauma on that scale there were some some of these marriages did occur um but something that surprises me in um reading the art book and some of the early texts they have in there is the term oedipus oedipal complex mm. comes up a lot this is supposed to be the boy working through that those almost, uh, almost early prepubescent feelings about loss of the mother and substitution of the mother there's also a, a note very early on and this is something that maybe was supposed to come back is um i think that what was, who was supposed to have been stolen that we'll come to was the baby and mm. it was more about the boy recalibrating the family unit in that way rather than it being a direct oedipal mother relationship but it all just goes into exactly what you're saying jake about how it's um once again, while this is possibly the most tortured protagonist, we've said that before, that, that Miyazaki's had in his movies, it's yet again, like Kiki, like Chihiro, a character who is at a very important stage of their the forming of their identity and having to work through something that they've never had to, de- de- they've never had to deal with before, mostly on their own, mm. um, without their parents being able to help them through it. So that's all there in this already in this sequence and i think in the in the setting he does isolate himself by choice as well but he does just he throws himself in the a detail that i love about the bed by the way i should say that he throws himself on is the um the pattern on the bed where it kind of it could be petals on a flower it could be plain propellers and i thought that it's that is so miyazaki <laughs> <laughs> is, is it nature is it warfare it's one of the two it's gonna it's it's me what what else is it gonna be um but he is yeah he is like a ghost wandering around this place because without him there or imagining him not being there it's actually quite a fun place like all of these old women they seem brilliant like like all the they the old men look great the, the gardens look brilliant, all the different houses, a mysterious tower. It looks fantastic. Um, but yeah, he is just, he is really struggling here. And I suppose that that is when we arrive with, at the heron. Yeah, that, the heron is such a an odd creation. There's something that I've, I've seen no one remark on yet. The first time he hears the heron speak is direct directly after he's just hit himself over the head with a rock mm. and no one <laughs> said is you know in in you know, is, does that explain the magical layer of this film that he's actually experiencing some sort of concussion and fever after that um the heron is a, such a fantastic creation i've used the term lording it over the estate <laughs> a couple of times now as we've talked about this film um the fact that he's j- and this is the great thing about the film is that it balances all the things we just said the very heavy meaningful stuff with just how you know how much he's being badgered and annoyed by this heron <laughs> similarly to what you just said about how the, the the hustle and bustle of the house is really fun the women and the um the little rivalries between the bloke the old bloke and the women and fighting over rations and cigarettes and everything um there's a lot to to 
to be entertained by and to be delighted by in 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 this opening and but i suppose at this point the heron is just a strange figure that's looming in the background we've not seen its full full form right yeah and it, what i find strange about mojito's reaction to the heron is he almost like instantly hates the heron <laughs> which i think understandable. is understandable but but why, Steph? Why? It's so creepy. <laughs> why wouldn't you? Um, I don't know if you guys saw the... Um, around the same time that the, the film screened at LFF, uh, the teen pop sensation Olivia Rodrigo had a interview in Rolling Stone where she said she's so scared of birds because no part of them is, like, human. They are, like, completely alien. Like, there's nothing... <laughs> There is nothing about them that is similar to us. So to hear one of them speak, like with no lips or anything, it's just like you just immediately feel like this visceral, like fear, hatred, repulsion towards the heron. That's before he's even kind of transformed out of his little heron costume and become kind of half man, half heron. Like, do not, I do not like it. <laughs> so you're on the side of Mojito immediately bash the heron if a heron came through your window and started like squawking your name or your mother's name yeah and then left like a poo on your windowsill <laughs> like you wouldn't you wouldn't Multiple be like, poos, I must I understand think. this uh, to be fair yeah. yeah Steph you are you are right on track there because um, we saw some herons when we were in Kyoto right yeah. very far off they were not near us if one of them had flown around and landed next to us, <laughs> we probably would start sharpening our own arrows. <laughs> um, but like, because the, I mentioned it there, I, can we talk very briefly about that moment of him hitting himself over the head? Because mm. I think that's another aspect that, um, because it's mostly implied and it's mo- uh, some elements of it are in signage in the background as well, what happens in that sequence isn't necessarily very obvious on a first view. That, of course, he's a middle class guy. His dad works in works in industry in the war effort, so he's taken care of in terms of um, you know in terms of his class and where he stands in the class system. And Miyazaki, of course, came from a pretty good, well off background, and this feels like a reckoning with that to a certain extent. In, in the sense that Mihito is there in the country, he's been set up in this beautiful estate with um, staff waiting after him. But then he has to go to the local school and most of his class have been conscripted into doing voluntary agricultural work um, in the fields. And it's in it's, it's a face-off with some of those kids on the way home from school where he's in a fight with them. And it's after that that the, the, sort of the anguish and the confusion and the trauma and the grief and everything just boils over and he strikes himself on the side of the head with with that stone and draws blood quite a lot of blood they read an article which said it's the most blood seen in a Miyazaki movie since Princess Mononoke and the head head and arm being chopped off but actually I'd say I'd I'd go back to The Wind Rises and the bit where Naoko is coughing up blood it's a very violent moment that and when this film got a 12A rating from the BBC in the UK looking at the reasons why and the sort of rating explanations. And it, is, it lists it as self-harm, and that's exactly what it is. It's a moment of self-harm in this movie, and it's clearly 
a working th working through of these conflicted emotions and feelings about your position in life and where you are um very i, I think both times i saw it i heard audible gasps gasps mm. in the mm. cinema and it's probably maybe not the first but one of the probably the first not the first because i think the opening is also quite horrific but it's maybe the first moment where you realize you're not in a cozy miyazaki movie anymore um when that happens well and uh, in those moments he's he's ultimately just trying to isolate himself again but because the violence that's put upon him by his classmates isn't far enough mm -hmm. i think to me he's he's looking at what they've done to him they've beaten him up but it's not quite enough to get him out of school to get him back in his bedroom to get him away from everyone again and to me like he's striking himself so it can be bad enough right that mm. the dad will say you're not going in again i'm having words and you're going to stay here and so all of this first act is all about isolation and mm -hmm. that's that's the effect that the grief has had upon him that even though he's going to get thrown into these environments where there's all these people that could be looking after him all these school kids that could be surrounding him he only wants to isolate himself and then as the film goes on more through nature and fantasy he becomes constantly covered in things and submerged in things <laughs> and whether that is kind of frogs or pelicans it's all the way is him just having to push himself into the opposite of what he wants which is forming connection again and he has his meat cute with the heron um <laughs> but the, yeah you, you've to to to, to, go, to jump off that you said there jake i've got a question what would you rather be smothered by <laughs> pelicans parakeets fish guts paper or i think this is your answer steph frogs <laughs> frogs <laughs> i think maybe parakeets if they're going to turn back into the normal form <laughs> is my answer the paper looks very sharp when that happens and sticking the paper's the scariest one i think I feel like maybe the frogs. I feel like you could peel them off quite easily, whereas I feel like I'd be picking pelican out of my teeth for months. <laughs> so we're into the B section now. Mm -hmm. um, that the A section ends with him hitting hitting himself with a rock, and the B section is the duel, the sort of sort of face off duel sequence with the heron, where he decides he really wants to. <laughs> He really wants to mess up this heron um, all the way up to entering the tower and that sort of showdown in that central room with the heron. This is all the B section. So this is you know, very much the title, the English language title of the film is very apt for this whole sequence. Yeah, I mean, this is this is the Ghibli version of Catch the Pigeon, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, this is, this is quite fun. The escalating stakes of it all, like particularly after the hero, heron like squeezes itself into the tower in a very Looney Tunes manner mm -hmm. um, and starts revealing his strange teeth and vocal qualities. Mm -hmm. And we are kind of outside of the warm reality of the country grounds. What I really like about this is the craft focus on it and not the filmmaking craft, but the kind of curiosity about how you make a bow and arrow. Um, this is something that as a 12-year-old boy, I was totally obsessed by. It's very Cub Scouts. It's like every week I'm going to make a bow and arrow. And of course, it would be a terrible bow and arrow. And there is something quite thrilling 
about the fact that Mojito makes this bow and arrow and seeing all the details of the whittling of it. And then the fact that it actually works is great. And then using, as soon as he uses the heron's feather and it has that kind of tracking quality, this is a, a red shell of a feather in other terms. <laughs> From there, the, the kind of, the stakes are up and you realise that kind of anything goes here and we could be on for something a bit more interesting than chasing a heron around a park. I love, in a similar way to what we were already talking about, like, this is a very sort of gross Miyazaki movie, anti-cozy. The use of the sort of masticated rice mm. as the glue in, when yeah. making an arrow. There's a lot of bodily fluids and ge- fluids in general um, in this in this film, um, and that's you know we're not we're, we're not in sort of that idealized cozy Miyazaki mold anymore. Um, <laughs> But this we... this is when he reads the book, right? In this section, or yeah. He sees the I think book. when he he kind of digs out a lot of books that have been left by his mother, mm. I think. Yeah. Um, and they all kind of spill to the floor, revealing a few book covers that seem to be references to other Ghibli films. Did you have one in mind, Steph? When you say when you say that, because I need um, to go back and. I'm pretty sure there was. Hang on, let me. There was a red turtle on the cover of one of them. Does that count? <laughs> that definitely um, counts. Not if you ask G kids with their checklist where they leave it off. I feel like there was a Mononoke one. There was like a deer um, with horns, mm. and there was some sort of badge, which I think is a house moving castle thing, maybe. Oh, interesting. Um, and then obviously he picks up How Do You Live? Um, how do you guys live? And how do you guys how do you guys live? Um, um, and then starts reading it and is very like emotionally taken with it. Um, for me, I would have cried at the section where the author makes you read about Napoleon for like a whole chapter. I think I just skipped that in the end. But he clearly has a connection to it. Um, I think like even though it's been said that you know there is no relation to that book in the film. I think there's like thematic connections like you were saying about Mahito kind of hurting himself and like removing himself from conflict with the other kids like that kind of moment of withdrawal I feel like the the boy and how do you live the book goes through a similar thing where it's kind of a moment of like it's more like a moment of cowardice for Mm -hmm. that boy um that then like kind of can't be taken back and has to be made right with the other kind of kids in his class Mm. I feel like maybe He's connecting with that yeah, potentially. I, I I think that's true. Um, maybe not. Maybe it's not at the forefront of Miyazaki's mind. I think in mm. the in, again in one of the um, proposals or texts that's in the art book, he says, "I'm only taking the title." Mm. Um, but it is still about the relationship between a creative deep thinker of an uncle with a young boy who's experiencing a lot of stuff. Um, admittedly, the stakes are always higher with Mojito and the uncle the grand uncle is elusive and distant and maybe that is a key difference between the book and the film the film doesn't even though Miyazaki has always been this um almost didactic figure in his films the grand uncle doesn't have all the answers and actually he's the one that's over invested in Mojito being this true-hearted soul and it's Mojito having to understand on this journey of self-discovery that no he's not and 
get a bit of perspective that way rather than reading a 30-page chapter written by his uncle as in um as in the novel which is which has its real moments i think that the sequence you alluded to there steph which is um where copper is at school and his mates are having a snowball fight with older kids and he doesn't rise to the challenge and help his friends yeah i could really see that working beautifully as a little moment in a movie um and then he has to then reckon with the consequences when school gets involved and all this stuff uh, and apologies and going to see his friends and making up and all that i i think that there's some links there but um as you say the the stakes are higher and of course copper doesn't go into a magical tower to track down his uncle who read too many books and went insane <laughs> i th- i believe as well I Luke's connections. Luke's connections. Acro- the across the Google Translate vortex, I-, I was reading as well some statements from Miyazaki, which says that the books were important. The granduncle's books, which are all over the first two, the, the, this particular sequence, the the tunnel going into the tower is lined with books, and they say that line: "He read too many books and went mad." Um, when in the end, really, books aren't that important later on, and that's something that. Um, you know, uh, has a connection with the the book I mentioned in the previous episode, the um, you know the, the John Connolly book, the Book of Lost Things, which is very much about uh, libraries and books and the magic of fiction and stories, which isn't so much in this late the, the later sections. But what we do have is this showdown in the in the this strange and beautiful. Um, I called it an antechamber in in my notes, but what would yeah this sort of circular room? Well, you've skipped it, so let's 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 work through. So after reading the book, that's when he sees Natsuko, his mother slash mother's sister, disappear into the woods. Mother aunt, mother aunt, mother, um, <laughs> and she's pregnant, and so she disappears, and. Mahito and one of the maids, Kiriko, they head towards the tower in the hopes of finding her. Um, And there's this tunnel. And so the tunnel that's engraved with um, words from Dante's Inferno in Latin. And so this is kind of definitely one reading that you can approach with is that this is kind of some descent descent into hell which it isn't in some ways and and i think the heron is a virgil in some ways of being this guiding figure that takes you through all these different realms but it's when they get on the other side of the tunnel that you of course michael you mentioned the tunnel is lined with books but it's when you get on the other side of the door that the heron comes to life after peeling itself away from the wall where it's a drawing so it's it's this it is this drawing come to life traveling through this corridor of stories and then it's taking this young boy into this journey to try and understand life and death which i love so, <laughs> I mean, there's so much going on there but i mean in a way that's like like the heron is animation like if we're viewing mojito as as Miyazaki, the heron is a, a still image come to life. And that's going to be this journey that he goes on. It's like, 
are you ultimately going to stay in this world and become the grand uncle? And I think we get to it down the line, but I think maybe that's the decision that Miyazaki made in his actual life. And that there was this lure of the heron and he was the boy. And I think the galaxy the he- brain takes a beginning. Let's this go. is amazing. Let's keep going. I think the heron as animation is a fantastic point to make because the heron as Ponyo in previous in the in, in, in previous film is shows the potential of animation to have a character that can change and warp and um, transform based on the moments and mood of a film. And when we first, you know, when he f- when he first sort of regurgitates the man inside the heron, it's. It was very similar to the sequences where you had three or four different versions of Ponyo between fish and girl, but on a whole new, upsetting, disquieting, gross sort of level. And there's a moment where the heron is quite scary because it says, "You know, I, I will, I will have you." You know, when when he's, he lures Mojito to the body of the, the the figure of his mother and it melts away. This melting. Um, this melting figure is very terrifying looks like something out of a horror manga or 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 anime series and but then very quickly turns into something slapstick Mm. and knockabout and funny and it's almost showing how there are so many moments we're getting to this moment where it gets a bit more episodic perhaps but it feels like every sequence is just a masterclass from Miyazaki and then the animators he's handed this this over to showing how at the turn of a you know these handbrake turns can happen stylistically tonally but you are so involved in the magic of the film and you believe the world and the animation that anything is possible um that you go along with it and it's so great when you mentioned it's like a looney tunes or a tex avery creation the the, the, when the heron has the arrow through his beak and then gets the beak has the hole in it so he can't achieve full magical heron form so he's <laughs> he's he's like roadrunner a wily e. coyote you said catch the pigeon didn't you jake where it's all knockabout cartoony stuff P- possibly the most cartoony we've had in a miyazaki movie certainly since castle cagliostro yeah, exactly. You know, where he's flapping those wings as hard as he can to stop himself from falling down the canyon, or in this case, the the, the central tower room. Um, it's just incredible, really fun stuff. And this is where it starts showing how funny this film can be. And it is very funny. It, it is very funny. I, before we move on, I do want to say, like, encountering the kind of mirage mm-hmm. of the mother that turns into this goop in this like beautiful almost roman hall that's just bathed in light it did make me think of magnetic robes oh yeah that's the um, satoshi Kon short where it's like there is something like beautiful but terrifying about it and that idea of reality disintegrating around you in the chamber of something so stunning i i am um, i i love this strange sequence because this is where we first kind of have to accept that the geography of the tower <laughs> and the entire rest of the film makes no sense, <laughs> which I love from like from here on out, no rules apply. And I know in spirited away, the bathhouse, it's not like we have a clean map of how the bathhouse works, but even in such a strange space like that, you do have a sense of there is 
in some abstract way a structure here. Yeah. But yeah, because Even... you go, I mean, in Spirited Away, you have like the lifts, you know, you go down to go down, you go up to go up. Like there's clearly like <laughs> physical, there's physics at work. But in this, you see, you know, the granduncle right at the top of the tower saying, come up to me. And then they go down through the floor. So you're immediately kind of, kind of all which ways about, like not yeah. really knowing which way is up or down. And that's a way that um, this is very much more in the direction of Alice in Wonderland than maybe the films that have previously been touted as Miyazaki's version of Alice in Wonderland, because it is a bit more of a surreal space. And it's very subtly or, um, you know, not so obviously a huge departure for him because um, Miyazaki very much came out of a school of a kind of animated realism where characters had consistent shapes or consistent you know, motives. The The worlds around them were very well detailed and consistent. And as you say, even though they can be magical or fantasy based, you can still understand the basic, you know, some of the basic rules of the worlds around them. That that was all thought out and thought through. And in this one, it feels a bit more like anything goes. And this art style can change from moment to moment as well. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally, for most people, are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I mean, I feel like now that we're in the tower and it is getting more episodic, there's a lot of weird stuff going on this for me when we were watching this was where i started to think a bit more thematically like okay mm. obviously i'm watching a boy dig a hole in the ship but there's earth underneath <laughs> or i'm watching some amazing butter and jam on bread being spread to like unreal proportions but like what does this all mean as a whole within the film so maybe I don't know how you guys felt about this section. If you if that was like where your mind went, or well, if you were just like along for the ride. This is where we're introduced to Kariko 
being one of the old women. Yes. Who yeah. joins him on his journey is transformed from one of the older women to the younger women. It's another bit of duplication going on. It's a Yababa and Zenaba again, or mother and sister again. And really interesting because it poses more questions than yeah. it answers. Um, <laughs> But she she's brilliant. She's like something out of Princess mm. Mononoke, really. Like, oh, she gave me like how how vibes. Oh, interesting. I yeah. guess like because female she's, she's got a yes. she's got a magic wand. Yeah, she's got uh, a cool little apartment that's quite dirty, but it's got lots of little cool little glass bottles in it, and yeah, that was my the, again going. not not to go back to the sort of timeline thing, but what really made this whole chunk of the film make a bit more sense to me is that this is block C. And Block D, basically. Block C is the ship graveyards, the pelicans, the warawara, all that stuff. And then D is parakeets, himmy, up to going into the tower. So this is almost like he's set things up and he's just going to jam for a while <laughs> before then having to figure out in part E, October 2018, how to figure it all out again. So... Yeah, this is. I think we mentioned that it gets very episodic, but this is, this is just like again masterclass after masterclass. I think we said about how you know, we're gonna maybe this is skipping ahead, but the Warawara Warawaras section. Mm. This is like I know probably not intentionally, but we didn't know these creatures existed for an hour plus of this film, and really they're only in it for fifteen minutes at most. But goddamn, they're so iconic (laughs) immediately (laughs) and it's almost like watch me i'm gonna create a whole incredibly cute thing you've never seen before you're gonna be so invested in them there's some lore attached to them you're gonna see the most beautiful thing you've ever seen with them um this beautiful moonlit night of them rising up into the sky and they're going to be the what the souls of born children um and then we're going to introduce some peril and you're gonna once again really hate birds <laughs> because of the the mastery of this film and it's just it's it's an ebb and flow it's almost like the short film in its own right you're introduced to these characters you it's beautiful horrifying and then you also meet the noble pelican afterwards who tells you that it's actually much more complicated than what you've just watched. It's not just that pelicans are eating warawaras for fun. It's because they're actually starved within this world. And that's the horrible cycle that they're in, um, mm. in the, um, in this sort of food chain that's been created by human hand, which is mm. again, harking back to Miyazaki's uh, pet themes of how we have created a, a decaying society. I was reading a bit about pelicans, and because there are, <laughs> I was reading about pelicans. How to kill a pelican? <laughs> um, well, I think Michael, you said a bit earlier about like the kind of mother figure being quite present in the film and the edible thing, and the the Warawara actually like they they go up to the surface to be born as children, right? That's what they are. Correct. So they are um, like eggs sperms um or sperms who knows but they're we're inside this tower where mojito's gone to look for his mother old mother and new mother he's inside this tower he's seeing the warawara who are children to be and then pelicans are eating them um i feel like it's another kind of thing of 
the world being turned on its head because apparently pelicans in kind of other symbolism they're like sacrificial parent figures so there's a lot of kind of imagery um like christian imagery medieval imagery of pelicans kind of feeding their children with their own blood so they will like bite them draw blood of themselves to like feed their children but then in this world they're like eating the little warra warra children um so i have no idea what that says about this film but i know there's a lot of kind of mother figure imagery mm. and kind of strange stuff going on i feel like i don't know maybe we're getting into the territory no, no, of just good stuff. No, no, this throwing is good out stuff. some stuff no, no, um, but there's what? definitely like something going on with because so we have yeah a heron a pelican some parakeets i feel like they're not random choices of bird unless miyazaki just has particular hatred towards those three types of bird <laughs> Um, so I just thought it was interesting that that is what they have been known to symbolise. Yeah. Do we think there's a there are there's a sequence on the cutting room floor with storks involved? Like, what does Miyazaki Ooh. think of the opening of Dumbo? <laughs> <laughs> um, Maybe. I I think the Warawaras is my favourite sequence in the film. I think it's it's like so watching Miyazaki just do the pillars of creation, um, <laughs> and like to be honest, I'm not a religious man, but I'll, I'll take that as my bible. <laughs> Like it's uh it's amazing. I I absolutely adore it. But I love because it looks so kind of ethereal and magical. Watching them ascend into the sky, these little kind of marshmallows with arms. And I know you said like what an incredible creation by Miyazaki, Michael. But these are the adipose from Doctor Who. Oh, I saw some of this. I don't watch Doctor Who, so I think I just saw some screenshots, so I didn't realise that. Well, you've, I can see you've got your computer open. Just have a quick Google of what an adipose looks like. I'll be waiting. I'll be here. If you haven't seen what an adipose looks like. Uh, spell it for me. A-D-I-P-O-S-E. But not the tissue that's in the human body, no. which might have actually been the body fat tissue called the adipose tissue, mm. which might have actually been the... the uh, um, could have been what inspired Miyazaki. They could have just been inspired by the same thing. Um, uh, I can see this. That's more like an actual walking marshmallow. Whereas what I love about the Warawara <laughs> is that it feels like the, particularly since we did the kids' book and since I've had Ivo drawing with Ivo, the great thing about Totoro, the great thing about Ponyo, the great thing about the Soot Sprites is that these are character designs that kids can draw. And I think the Warawara is a, an amazing addition to that because really you just have to draw a circle with a, with a smiley face in the middle <laughs> and you can draw lots of them. Um, the Adipose, I can see some link there. Oh, I, I can't imagine Miyazaki has watched Doctor Who. If he has, lovely. Um, but I think like, even before this, just thinking of like elements tying this back to things that we've seen before in his work, like Kariko's ship and the catching of the fish... Like that feels like a mixture of Future Boy Conan and Little yeah. Norse Prince. Like we've got, we're almost like kind of going back and playing the hits that playing them in a new way. And it, it's it's really something to behold. Like the pulling the fish open, like how like how to pair a giant fish. An oh, amazing that's another, scene. That's another shot. Not not to ever suggest that they're actually copying you know storyboards from or, or key art from previous films but there's the bit where mojito is poised over the fish with the knife to gut it and it looks like um san in 
Princess Mononoke with the sword. Oh, that's There's a like great one thought. moment yeah. where that particular shot looks exactly like that, but it's um, a great moment of kids learning learning a, a trade or a craft or something that's mm. important in life, but done so to such a gross level. Oh yeah, just like the amount of <laughs> like the infinite guts within this fish that just spill out and cover the screen is so gross. I love it. <laughs> I was wondering if you guys noticed any other shots that looked like they were drawing on some of the other films, just because I had a couple that just made me think like, oh, that looks like a shot that I remember from Princess Mononoke or whatever. There's one shot to me where there's a shot of the heron walking on the roof of the house before they go into the tower and you just see his feet mm. and it looks exactly like the, um, the, uh, the forest, Spirit of the Forest from Princess Mononoke. There's a shot oh, where he's yeah. walking and all the flowers are kind of blooming and dying. Um, it's just a very similar shot. Um, but yeah, I was just thinking about well, the I, use I, of that stuff and the reference to kind of other films of Studio Ghibli that have obviously built up to Miyazaki being able to make this film. Well, like, I think that that's what makes this perhaps even more autobiographical than The Wind Rises. Like there feels like there are more semi-direct or direct references like that. I think Kiriko's Kiriko on the boat is intentionally styled like Future Boy Conan. Yeah, like it, it's very much on purpose, and I think that that's why I think it's like this is more clearly a wrestling with with the career that he took, mm. the, the lifetime that he spent making these stories. And whether descending into this world for an entire lifetime was worth it. Absolutely. And, and I mean, it, it is complicated by the fact that um, some of the signatures we see on screen may be Miyazaki, maybe in his storyboards, but they could also be the fact that f to make this film, they brought back all the key players. Mm. So many of the key animators who's, you know, who've been working on so many of his features are brought back and maybe this is their signature that's being that's that's, that's appearing again or mm. after all these years and i'd love i'd love to delve into the storyboard but my budget didn't stretch far <laughs> enough so because um cd japan or wherever i got was like 25 pounds per book in shipping um so i didn't stretch that far but the art book <laughs> is, is is gorgeous um but this whole sequence just feels like in a similar way to Spirited Away, the opening up of the brain, so many beautiful images and moments and ideas from that mysterious golden gate that he sees all the way to the, the house that's in a boat that is festooned with nature, which feels almost like a, the sea-bound equivalent of Castle in the Sky as well in that moment. But it's also in bloody Shuna's journey. Like Good in point, Shuna's though. journey, Shuna comes across a ship in the desert, but the ship is made of wood and bricks. Like he, he cannot resist going back to the well. <laughs> <laughs> and if the well, the well's water is that good, then why not? <laughs> but like, okay, let's move on from the Warawaras, um, as much as we don't want to. So that's where we get more of an idea of the granduncle granduncle is teased but we'll come back to him later um and here mojito himi 
who we haven't met yet, is introduced. She's the young woman with magical powers who seems to appear out of flame and then disappear again at helpful or unhelpful moments. Um, did we did we get who Himmy was straight away? I didn't. I didn't. I don't think it was necessarily very clear. She, I mean, she makes the reference about uh, where uh, there are references in the script to sisters who had disappeared and come back and things like that. So you could probably pick mm. it up as you go. Not on my first view, I didn't. Yeah, not at first sighting, but I think before she reveals who she is, kind of right at the end, you have worked out by then. Yeah. I mean, I'm, Steph, you've now got me thinking of like all the like different kind of connections that I've been making whilst watching this and going back over things because like Himmy's kind of dressed like Sophie in How <laughs> and she appears in the flame, which is a, a thing that happens in the Naushka manga as well, almost mm-hmm. kind of laid out exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Um, but she becomes this kind of assistant on this journey. But you've got Mahito and Himmy and the heron who has been absent for a bit, but then comes back in again. There's a lot of that. People kind of get subbed in and subbed out. When he goes out, I breathe a sigh of relief. <laughs> yeah. And when he comes back, I'm annoyed. But there are so many like moments in the in this sequence that are like great moments, particularly watching them in the cinema, and very funny moments. So before he meets Himmy is where he goes into that building. Well, even before that is when he re- reunites with the heron. And the, the he whittles down the little cork stop stopper mm. for the for the for the beak, and it's almost a Hollywood comedy jump cut type gag, <laughs> where um, where he you know um, in, in, you know where where he's hammering in, and the, the the stopper, and then similarly when they go into the the, the that house that's been vacated and the all of the parakeets are there. It's a very funny sequence and, and um, in a way that I think both times we watched it, the audiences were quite surprised there were gags like this in this film that are so mm. dark and um, I guess goofy in some ways because the parakeets are terrifying but goofy. Um, when we first meet them, they're there welcoming him in in sort of broken language or awkward uh, mannerisms and then you see from a sort of shot from a certain angle that what this parade this like procession of parakeets that welcome into the house have like cutlery and plates behind their back ready to devour him really funny that stuff um and before we then go to meet to meet himmy they have an almost um penguin from the wrong trousers quality to them yeah just so good so gone well, I think like they reminded me, going back to Alice in Wonderland, of the playing cards, uh, as these kind of these like comically figured henchmen that yeah. uh, kind of roam these grounds, being a bit silly but also a bit violent. But I, I love their abode because they are somehow also living within the tower, but the tower mm. seems to have rooms that just expand and expand and expand and there's a kitchen there's also there seems to be some kind of bar where the parakeets hang out i'd love to go to the parakeet bar but this is all within the tower which from the outside seems to be at maybe at best 10 meters wide but all of this is happening within there i think it feels like i guess it yeah it depends 
what direction you think Mojito and his crew are going, right? Like whether they're going up or down or in, <laughs> because it kind of feels like they're going in a spiral and then whatever new level they're on, there are like similar visual motifs, but they've changed slightly. Um, like there's stuff um, when he's at that kind of golden gate with all the pelicans around him that reappear in the kind of delivery room in that kind mm. of big scene with his aunt. And then, yeah, there's like so much kind of, Michael, you said like Miyazaki's like jamming for this bit, but he's kind of returning to these like visual kind of pointers to kind of ground himself in places. Um, but then, yeah, he could be going further in. And then with each point he goes into the tower, there's like a new layer of weird fantasy getting further from reality. I don't know. It's a weird I, black I hole love of... all of this. This is like, <laughs> this is so up my street. I, I love him just making every threshold of this space an opportunity to do something new mm -hmm. and something that we haven't seen mm -hmm. before. Like there is that room that is almost just entirely bathed in light that has these square doors where you walk from one side to the other and a doorway can appear at any moment in any location. Mm. That's brilliant. But going back to the horror that we mentioned earlier, that delivery room you mentioned, Steph, mm. like where he stumbles upon Natsuko, who looks like she's ready to give birth. But this, this is horrifying where like her, the birth of her child transforms into like the the burning of Tokyo again and the bandages on her transform into the bandages that would have been draped around his mother's flesh which then wrap around him and kind of turn him into some kind of Boris Karloff mummy type figure and that's just this little aside to the narrative that doesn't it it kind of just exists in some kind of dream space but there is so many moments like that that just add up emotionally speaking yeah I'll, I'll admit this is the point where i lost the track of the story but was very much driven along by the imagery and the real raw emotion and it's something that is hard to translate in the subtitles but what breaks through in that moment is when he starts uh, he recognizes that it's not his mother it's natsuko of course and he starts calling her natsuko um uh Kasan, Natsuko Kasan, meaning Natsuko mother, sort of blending those two words mm. together and starts to recognise in her his mother, but also his new mother and his, his responsibility towards her and the child. And it's a very profound emotional moment. So to get back to something, Steph, you know, you say the moments that make us think of other moments. Mm. It's spirited away, isn't it, with all the paper, little paper guys? Yeah, yeah. Mm. So that's, again, something very similar here but in a much more terrifying way and resonant way seeing what we've seen before and the milieu this is in mm. but this is also where like just after this we kind of get some logic inferred into the whole thing that doesn't really add up where Himi is explained to have been Hisako his mum who disappeared into the tower which was actually a meteorite that landed on the grounds of the building and she went into it for a year and then came out but she hadn't aged a day which yeah, is so very narnia it's 
the the law of the world. This this is what I sort of talked about on the previous episode, where it's better to not think that this is a thousand-page fantasy novel where the mm. law is completely laid out and explained. It's better to go on the vibes because, mm. yeah, the tower is of course a place that um, traverses space, but it is also a, mainly a time traveling. All those doors are doors to different times rather than necessarily different places around the universe or multiverse or whatever it is. Because it's around this point as well where we first go through one of those doors because um, Himmy and... Almost like Star Wars infiltrating the Death Star sequence where they're going through all the corridors (laughs) and there's some parakeets coming their way so they've got to go through a door. But the door is a portal back into uh, uh, the the real world, the present day, the 1940s present day. And we have that amazing moment of the action hero dad <laughs> yeah but it's, it's silly. out to avenge his son yeah it's silly cartoony stuff again they're kind of the infinite corridor and people bouncing in and out of different doorways that's like that's like benny hill like we've seen that in so many other cartoons as well is that the point where the biggest laugh line in the movie is where it's um mojito turned into a budgie <laughs> yeah because he's like striding up and he's got his samurai sword in his shoved into his uh, his belt and he sees them and he's they're marching towards them and then there's that flush of birds turning into their sort of normal form. Then my son turned into a budgie. <laughs> um, but they both. But then there's there's another. Oh, you must love this stuff, Jake, because it's almost Spielbergy Indiana Jones because they're both then imprisoned and there has to be a breakout <laughs> oh well the heron you, has to show his suddenly got a uh, kind of a very clear kind of baddie to go up against in the the parakeet king <laughs> and um all of the parakeets that kind of profess their undying love for this parakeet king i find so funny they like anything to do with the parakeets is hilarious um but like this is kind of where we get right really into the strange end of things where things are both very philosophical and very action heavy at the same time where well, yeah. the parakeet king is kind of going to make a deal with the grand uncle that's wrapped mm. up with himi and mojito that are all part of it whilst the, the tower itself seems to be crumbling well this is the this is the transition between the dne sections which is where it suddenly locks into a bit of plot where Mahito wakes up in the in the dungeon. You've got the amazing heron disguised as a parakeet <laughs> stuff. <laughs> and it is all very Spielbergian. We're introduced to this fascist state of the parakeets. Mm. Um, very interesting that um, we've had Guillermo del Toro, who's very inspired by Miyazaki, and then now Miyazaki make films, animated films in the last couple of years, where there is a very clear Italian fascist um, kind of allegory within the film with his his version of Pinocchio very much being Mussolini inspired. Um, and then, yeah, that all seems to be getting us to the stage where it's the E section, where it goes cosmic and big meaning, big theories, big thoughts, the showdown or the meeting with the grand uncle, the going behind the curtain and seeing the Wizard of Oz figure, um, which... It's a galaxy brain moment, I suppose. It's so good. <laughs> this is where it's like, like you say, you joke about he goes galaxy brain. They do a Stargate sequence. They, it goes like, Tree of Life, Terence Malick, right? Yeah. It's so like even Hisaishi in the music. That's where he fully goes Philip Glass, swirling strings, arpeggios to the to the heavens kind of stuff, which is 
so wonderful. I love his score. We can do another two hours on the score <laughs> at some point. Oh man, I I absolutely adore it from here. It's um, it's like none of it makes any sense, but it's like so satisfying somehow. It like the last ten minutes of the best Christopher Nolan films where it's just like these waves and waves of glory over and over again. Um, because it's setting stuff up that particularly for us, because we live in this world of this studio so much and we talk about it so much, like all of a sudden the grand uncle who has spent his life living within a fantasy world, building an artistic structure and over and over again says that only someone who has a blood relation of him can like maintain this world it's 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 almost too easy <laughs> well yeah this is where we have the the several competing conflicting overlapping explanations or theories about who's who what does this all mean and i must say on my first view the thing that struck me the strongest and touched me really is that feeling of what he said about this being a story for his grandson and it all hinges on a moment where a kid, his probably his grandson's age, is going up to an old bloke who's there in his study doing something the kid doesn't really understand and says, what do you do all day, granddad? And it just feels like there's a beautiful moment where it's Miyazaki trying to explain what he does all day to a young kid. And it's like, in the simplest sense, it's like literally getting child building blocks and saying every day I've got to kind of like build these up to a tower and see whether they, you know, withstand gravity for a day. And if they do, then I've done a good job. If not, it's all, all falls apart. And it feels like in some ways it's so cosmic. And as, as you say, Jake, and it's very Christopher Nolan, interstellar, big, big thoughts. But it's also at the heart of it, a very simple explanation of the creative process because how do you explain to somebody who doesn't have the notions of doesn't understand the notions of animation or storytelling or writing the building you use building blocks and yeah, it's the simple I mean, thing of does it hold water does it stand those, up those blocks i love because i think I, I actually i can't remember who says it but there's something along the lines of like re referring to those stones that he keeps making to the statues those stones can be statues or they can be gravestones and that's kind of what he's wrestling with here in terms of legacy is what am I making in life? What does my life amount to? Does it amount to a piece of art or does it just amount to my death? And does it amount to a gravestone? <laughs> Which is amazing. Like, like this is a finale of an animated film that's currently the number one film in America. <laughs> <laughs> because this is where... We talked about this when we talked about The Wind Rises way back when, how that is a big apologia, a reckoning, a mea culpa for a life dedicated to his craft where his relationships with his um, loved ones maybe had to be sacrificed for that. And there was this sense that you have your moment in the sun, your moments of genius, and you have to dedicate yourself to that. Um, and maybe there'll be people you lose along the way. And that's back here right because there is a reading where Miyazaki is this is Miyazaki at both the beginning and the end of his career this is Miyazaki the 11 year old who's been inspired by watching films reading manga thinking this could be a life for him and it's Miyazaki in his 80s saying 
was it all worth it and is there anything have i actually created anything that's really lasting that can exist beyond me that really means anything it makes me think of um i think this has been posted this is no, by no means a um a unique thought but it makes me think a lot about the bits that's sometimes used as a meme in um the kingdom of dreams and madness where miyazaki's asked are you worried about the studio's future and he says the future is clear it's going to fall apart i can already see it what's the <laughs> point in worrying it's inevitable ghibli is just a random name i got from an airplane it's only a name and some of that is verbatim in the script said by the <laughs> grand uncle like you know it's all gonna fall apart what's, you know it's inevitable but what what I like about the film's approach to that idea is in Kingdom of Greens and Madless, he says that in a kind of nihilistic, mm -hmm. offhand way, and that people will imagine him as this grumpy granduncle. But in The Boy and the Heron, when the decision is made to destroy the tower, to destroy the world, I think the granduncle is pleased. Relieved. Yeah. Mm. And I think that's the right decision or at least within for the characters that's the right decision to make and i love that because it feels like there is so much weight taken off of anyone that would come after him particularly goro i'm thinking of as well that there's this almost acknowledgement that there there is too much surrounding me as a filmmaker and this studio and that to preserve the legacy of the studio the best thing to actually do is to almost put it away now to to destroy it and let something else be built instead by other people which is a strange thing to say as people that built their careers around talking about this studio but i really think that's such a bold thing to suggest at the end of the film um but i think there's some truth to it too yeah, I, 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 and it's very fortuitous that the film comes out as they do sell the studio to a, to a, to a partner, and it is almost like okay, over to you. Mm. We're, we're yeah, you know, we were not going to try and keep this as a going concern with a new generation and foist it on the shoulders of Yonabayashi or or Goro or all of these people we talk about. Um, it's it's it is. It, it's it's really fascinating it's really hard not to get as we have got so deep into the autobiographical auteur theory stuff here and jake i'm thinking back to how you say that you think that miyazaki's all three the boy the heron and the grand uncle because yeah sure memes say that he's the grand uncle he's saying he was once mojito and he's also the heron because he's just shown you a really fun ride as you're going <laughs> through all this heavy stuff he's also puckish and silly and a bit scary and all these all these things that the heron is at the same time as he is posing all these questions that he never answers in his films he likes to end things on a over to you guys how will you live how do you live um whilst also still having the wonder of animation at the heart of it well like and it's only in animation in the way that he tells stories that he can have this dialogue because in reality, he can't have a conversation with the 12-year-old version of himself. But this is the way that he can, and that he can pass on that conversation to his grandchildren and to other grandchildren out there. And this feels like a way of communicating 
to that young generation that are directly related to him see him as a grandfather about what happens to me when I die what happens to my work when I die but also the wider Ghibli community like it feels like a message to them to us as fans as well like it's not just the tower that's closing or being destroyed it's the studio it's a career and the end of that career is something to be celebrated because of the beauty that came from within that tower Mm. and this is what i love about a film that's misshapen and weird because if this was written hollywood style pixar style where you've got several story editors and a story committee and council making sure this is thematically perfect and structurally pure you wouldn't be able to have these odd corners and gaps where we fill them with meaning that are, that engage you in ways you lean in you have to figure things out for yourself and that's why i talk about this when people ask about it i say you've got to wrestle with it in a way that you you would when it's a great work from any other great filmmaker it's not just a, a packaged ghibli cozy ghibli masterpiece where it's going to tell you here's your nice character here's your nice food moments here's the thing you're going to get as a tattoo Here's the merchandise. It's a it, much. It does more... admittedly have all four of those things. I mean, that's the great thing about Ghibli, right? <laughs> He's always been able to do that while making films that don't have endings. Because this film doesn't really have a. It has a, a a massive, big thematic climax, and then it sort of peters out in that final scene. And I know people have been frustrated by mm. how it ends specifically. I think this is much better than Spirited Away in that sense, how it ends. Um, but what do we think? about Suzuki's read of this film. So, of course, it came out in Japan with zero marketing. They had the poster, the title. And so I've been theorising in many ways about and, and keeping up with this international release. And the international release, particularly the English language release, is the first time that Toshio Suzuki has really been able to talk about it properly with press. So he's not been able to imprint, imprint his reading or use his marketing wizardry on it and the big quote he's been giving to almost every english language outlet that he's been talking to is the film is about ghibli in the sense that miyazaki's the boy the grand uncle is takahata and suzuki is the heron (laughs) which i just make is a big raspberry (laughs) for me (laughs) self-insert Because, you know, know, Miyazaki's not giving any of these interviews, so so Suzuki can say whatever the hell he wants. And I I can't tell if it's like a self-deprecating, like, I'm just the goofy guy that, like, goes around and heralds people through, or if he's trying to say something else with it. I don't don't fully understand that. I think he's looking for a way to make himself the title character. (laughs) (laughs) Not just the title calligrapher. But, um, yeah, I, I think as well, Suzuki, like... Again, it, it it speaks to how in our film discourse often films are just boiled down into one reading and one um, way of looking at it. And Suzuki probably means that in a way that there are probably elements of Miyazaki's relationship with Takahata with the Grand Uncle. The way that Takahata was very much an inspiring mentor-like figure for Miyazaki. But then they drifted apart in later years. Takahata very much isolated himself literally in a separate studio of his own making, pl- working on these um, these uh, you know 
not vanity projects but experimental projects that required a lot of resource and time and is was separate from the real world in many ways and yeah suzuki it made me think of was it goro we interviewed goro on the podcast when earwig and the witch came out and he referred to suzuki as a dark wizard who makes me do things that i don't want to do (laughs) (laughs) and i suppose in the heron inviting mojito into this fantasy world there is an element of that and probably the maybe suzuki's referring to elements of the design of the character that miyazaki may have drawn but it's a very pat reading that i I think does the film a disservice to have that in your brain as you go and sit down i don't i think it's i think it's nice but i don't think it works once you get to the end of the film Mm. because their lives are so different and i i don't think the takahata legacy is so tied to ghibli or miyazaki in that way from a global fan perspective as well as much as we love Takata's works I don't think the kind of mourning for his tower crumbling would create as much of an outpouring as it would for Miyazaki and the end of Ghibli I would really love to again well maybe this will come out as more material comes out about the film and the production but it happens right before right, right in between while Miyazaki's working on like parts C, D, and E, is when Takahata dies. Mm. So there's a, there is a, there is this shift as as we go go through the film, and a change of direction, or at least a sort of um, a homing in on certain themes. And maybe the death of a mentor might have informed that in some way. But it's not as easy as yeah, as easy as it seems in that reading. I don't think. Well, I think we solved it. i'm joking of course um we have not seen this with the dub yet and who knows what uh what we might understand once we've heard robert pattinson i did see the great the great post someone made on online about how never before has um a character seemingly been created for the voice actor that would play them in the dub as the parakeet king looking almost exactly (laughs) like dave bautista (laughs) in a parakeet (laughs) outfit (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i I can't wait i I can't wait to see to see the dub Mm. um and also see it in imax Mm. pretty exciting to see just drown in the details of the film yeah yeah i mean if if anyone's listening to this who happens to be in london and wants to see it in imax we will be doing a little intro to one on the 6th of january if anyone wants to come down and say hello we'd love to see you there um but yeah that's going to be a real sight to see it see it big like that Amazing. Um, well, I think that kind of draws us to a close on this conversation, which feels like we've only really still scratched the surface of, and I'm sure we'll be coming back for more Boy in the Heron chat. We've got the dub chat to have. We've got a mailbag to have. So make sure you email us your thoughts on the film, ghibliatech at gmail.com. We're going to have a great time because I'm sure there's going to be so many readings out there that we would have had no idea about that i'm sure our lovely listeners would have considered absolutely but until next time you can find us on social media we are on twitter slash x i'm still calling it twitter guys um as ghibli attack we're on instagram ghibli dot pod we're also all on the socials individually as well jake's on twitter jake h cunningham instagram jake dot h dot cunningham steph's on twitter at underscore steph watts Michael's on Twitter at Michael J. Leader and on Instagram at Michael.Leader.
produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Harold McShill and Steph Watts. Our music is by Anthony Ng. <laughs>